last time in this series at least, we go to the book of Hosea. I really hope and I pray that this this series has been helpful for you. I hope that you've seen the redeeming love of God from Hosea's writing, from his sermons. And I hope that this sermon series will have prepared your heart for the sermon series that's to come. Just to let you know, next Sunday morning, I am, I can honestly say this, in 10 years of pastoral ministry, which we celebrate on the last Sunday of September, I'm sorry, so September 29th, uh, and I hope you're all marking that on your calendars to be here, but in 10 years, I don't think that um, there have been very many things, maybe one or two other things that have excited my soul, like the sermon series that we're going to begin next Sunday and for the next four Sundays to celebrate the life of our church over 10 years and to chart the path for 10 years to come. Uh, We've entitled it Reclaiming the Gospel, Grounding the Church in the Mission and Power of God. And as you work through the New Testament, just looking back over 10 years and you begin to reflect, God, have we done what we should have done? And looking forward to the next 10 years, God, will we do what we're supposed to do? What is the church about? Why are we here? And what is our mission? And uh, to look at those things throughout the course of the New Testament um, is so exciting. And uh, I'm telling you, I'm thrilled. And I hope you'll be here for those four sermon series. We're going to begin by examining Romans 1 next week. And then we'll have different passages that relate to the mission of the gospel in the life of the church for the next three Sundays after that. So I, I'm thrilled, but I really feel, at least in my own heart, I really feel like Hosea has prepared me for that. To understand the character of God and the redeeming purposes of God has just been a benediction to me. I pray it has been to you as well. And so this morning we want to look at Hosea 14 in a sermon entitled, Finally Home. A picture of repentance and mercy. And so out of respect for the reading of God's Word, would you join me in standing as we read this precious last chapter in this book? Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. For in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will rise again, or I'm sorry, will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, 
Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. Let's pray. Father, guide us now by your Spirit to that place of being finally home. Father, we're sinners. We're no different than Israel, and we confess that to you this morning. We identify so readily with the hymn writer. Prone to wonder, Lord, we feel it. So prone are we to leave the God we say we love. So, Father, this morning, here's our hearts. Take and seal them. Seal them, Father, for your courts of worship that are above. And, Father, bring us to that place that the gospel inevitably leads to, that place we call home where we are in right standing with the Father God who created us, with the Father God who redeemed us, with our Father who is faithful to His covenant promises in spite of our great unfaithfulness. Father, do in our hearts what only You can do this morning in bringing us to that place of repentance where mercy dwells. May we find You sufficient for our worship. May we find Your provision exactly what we need and sweet. And Father, may we find living in Your service under Your authority, under Your reign, blessed and joyful and peaceful. Father, seal in our hearts that one truth that Jose has been about from the very first verse, and that is that you are a God of faithful, redeeming, covenant promises who cannot fail. And may we find those realities of living life with you sweet. Father, cause us to be greater worshipers deep in our understanding of your character so that we rise higher in our worship. Root us like those trees of Lebanon, Father, that, that, that go deep, the roots go deep into the soil and they last and they weather centuries of storms. And their leaves and their branches and their aroma are a testimony to the root. Father, root us in you that we may grow up and weather and give glory to your name in increasing depth. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who has brought us home as prodigals back to our Father. We pray in His name and for His sake. Amen. Thank you. May you be seated. God has created many of his creatures with incredible, incredible instincts and abilities. One of those abilities that he has created that is so unique and fascinating and really, to be honest, entertaining is the instinct in animals to find their way home in the face of unimaginable scenarios. I remember as a a child seeing the old Disney production about three animals that were transported to another part of the country. And uh, I think it was entitled Incredible Journey or something to that effect. But they 
found their way back home, that sense of instinct of where home was uh, being impossible to lose. And so they journeyed across, true story, journeyed across the country and found their way back home. A friend of mine who was for a number of years an outdoorsman and a leader of outdoor activities at a camp in Colorado shared with me a story that occurred a few years ago there in the wilderness area of Colorado. Uh, an individual was setting out on a winter's day to go for a horse ride through the forest after the snow had fallen. And so he saddled up his horse and set out into the national forest in the midst of this beautiful snow surrounding him in the beautiful forest with the snow on the trees. And as he was out riding the horse, as so often happens in Colorado, you don't see the storms coming because of the mountains. And so as he was out riding that morning, a great storm, a blizzard came up over the mountain and literally engulfed him in complete wide-out conditions. He couldn't see even a foot in front of where he was. And so doing the only thing he knew to do, he took a blanket that he had with him and he laid down on top of the horse and he pulled the blanket over him using the, the horse's body heat to keep him warm and to keep him from freezing to death. After he was covered up for a few moments, he began to feel the horse moving. And in desperation and unable to get off the horse and do anything, he just rode it out on the back of that horse. And after a number of hours, the horse finally stopped moving and he sat up from under his blanket and pulled the blanket back only to find that he was again in wide out conditions and the storm had not abated and he could not see past the end of his horse. And so he laid back down and pulled the blanket over him. Several hours again passed and the storm finally abated and he raised up and looked once again and found that he was a mere two to three feet from his front door. The horse, having that God-given instinct of where home was and where the right place to be was, even though the storm was great, was able to take off in the middle of that storm and make its way back home, saving not only its own life, but the life of its master as well. God has given incredible instincts. In Hosea chapter 14, as the prophet closes his sermon, God places in the heart of Israel, because He is a redeeming God, because He is a God of mercy, places in the heart of His people that divine spiritual instinct to come home. As God opens His final words to the nation of Israel through the prophet Hosea, He does so through a beautiful roadmap of grace that He has placed in their heart, that He has effectually worked in them, and He paves the way for them to come home, not only spiritually, but literally at some point. We find that at the core of God's instruction throughout the book, but especially here in chapter 14, the core of His instruction is not simply a hollow spiritual existence that He calls them back to, but rather a rich and vibrant relationship with Him and to Him. God brings Israel home in chapter 14. And here is how God begins. Would you look at the text with me this morning? God says this to Israel, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
And God, again, summarizing all of the the things that he has said, all of the, the transgressions of the nation. And he says to them, here's the command, you have to come home. You must return to me because you have stumbled, because you have walked away. And then he goes on to spell out how it is that they will come home. This path that they will take. This this spiritual instinct that he enlivens in them and makes possible for them. Because he's a redeeming God. He doesn't just simply say to Israel, Israel, you are my chosen people. I create you. But at the moment that you stray from me, you're on your own. I hope you find your way back. He doesn't say that. He very clearly and explicitly states out, Israel, here is how you will come back. This is what the road looks like. Here are the markers for the road. Find your way home to me this way. And we see I believe in these first verses here that there is a worship involved in their repentance. How do you get home post-iniquity? How do you get home, brothers and sisters, this morning? How do you and I come back to our Father after we have sinned? Well, Israel experienced the grace of God, the salvation of God in the worship involved in their repentance. And I want you to know this, what God says to them. In verse 2, he says this, Pursue honest repentance, take words with you, and return to the Lord. And say to Him, take away all our iniquity, and receive us graciously, that we may present the fruit of our lips. The first step on the way back home to God is always a step of repentance. The Hebrew word shiva here literally means to turn around. To to be walking down a path and simply stop and turn and go back. It's a turning, it's a change of direction. But in order to repent, we need to understand, brothers and sisters, this morning, that what Israel was doing was repenting biblically. And to repent biblically, there are two aspects. You repent from something, and then you repent to something. There, there, are a, 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 there has to be a two-dimensional approach to our repentance. You repent from something, and you repent to something. And life before God, as we are living our life before God, it is not, brothers and sisters, merely about stopping our sin. It is about the simultaneous reaction of beginning worship as well. Beginning surrender to God. It's not only that we say, quit sinning, it is that we say, start worshiping. That's biblical repentance. Start turning from this and turning to this. And this is what God says to Israel that they are to do. And really, this teaching is affirmed throughout the Scriptures. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, you know this text. We've probably quoted this many times, even to our own children. Where Paul says this, here's how you are to live, Ephesian believers. Put off the old man. Does he stop there? What does he say? Put on the new man. 
That's what repentance looks like. It's not just that you quit doing outwardly the things that you shouldn't be doing. It is that you clothe yourself in the new man. And by the way, how is the new man created? Where does he get his new clothes from? Who's created after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is a new man in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. And so this repentance in the life of the nation of Israel, this repentance in the life uh, of us today, is not only a ceasing from sin, but it is a change of clothes. Literally, in, in, in the Greek, in Ephesians 4, it, it literally pictures this, a change of clothes. Take off the clothes of the old man, put on the clothes of the new man. That's what it says. That's the picture that the words get. And the picture that we are to put on is the new man, the holiness of Christ himself, not our own holiness. Israel tried that and it didn't work very well, did it? We cannot clothe ourselves in man-made righteousness or man-made holiness because it doesn't exist. And so God calls them to repent, to leave the sin and cling to himself who is our righteousness. Brothers and sisters, I can say in my own life, I can say with the authority of scriptures that we are never truly repentant unless we are engaged in a God-centered life of worship. How do you know if somebody's repentant? How do we know? How do you know if your children are repentant? Now, let's be honest, as parents, we know what that looks like, right? The non-repentant heart and the truly repentant heart. We know the non-repentant heart. I'm okay, so I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And we see it, don't we? And we recognize it. And we understand that there has fundamentally not been any inner transformation in the heart. And oh, it's maddening, isn't it? But when a child comes broken and I, I, I sinned and what I did was wrong and I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It was wrong. I didn't want to do that. And then they immediately turn and they go do the very thing that they were told to do the first time. Now we know something is affecting the heart. And we're beginning to see repentance. Why? Because there is an outward demonstration of an inward change. Brothers and sisters, we cannot say in our spiritual walk before God, I am repentant, I have quit my sin, but I'm still not worshiping God. I've ceased from idolatry, but neither am I worshiping God. I am just uh, in a state of awe-worshiping, if you will. I'm not, I'm just neutral. God says, I don't know what that looks like, but I do know what true repentance looks like. And it looks like this, Israel, turn from your sin, turn to me and bring these words with you. And repenting toward God is really the theme of what Hosea is writing about. He's made the case. They understand what they are to repent from. That's been clear for 14 chapters now. But in, in chapter 14, Hosea wants to be sure they understand what they are repenting toward. That, that change, that outward manifestation of a heart change 
back toward God. And so Hosea brings it to this level, this very personal level. By the way, Luke 15, I, one of the greatest passages in all of the Scripture. Here is the prodigal son. Here's the prodigal son whose repentance didn't just say, I'm going to quit living with the pigs in a Gentile land. Did he say that? No, he says, I'm going to stop what I've done and I'm going to go to something. I'm going to go back, not just to something. I'm going to go to my father whom I have sinned against. Well, that's repentance. And when he comes back to the father, he doesn't ask, Father, can I be restored to full sonship? Does he? He comes humbly and he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and am no longer worthy. Right? And he says, could it be that I, I'm just a hired servant? The lowest form, I, I'm not a house slave, not one who's brought into the family, but could I just be a day laborer for you? Could, 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 I, could I become that to you? That is biblical repentance, not just from sin, but back to a restored relationship to the one sinned against. That's where Israel finds themselves. Take words with you and say to the Lord, the one offended, say to him, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Now, Why was Israel able to say this? They're able to say this for the same reason the prodigal did what he did in Luke 15. Listen, this is the point. The reason the prodigal went back to his father, the reason Israel could come back to God, is for the fundamental reason they knew the character of their father and their God. They came back understanding that that man in Luke 15, that God Almighty was a God of redemption and cleansing and forgiveness. They knew. This is what God wants Israel to know about him. Israel, you have sinned, but I've remained faithful. Israel, you cannot redeem yourself, but I will redeem you. And so knowing what you know about me, here I am, come home. Do we know that about God? Do we, do we so understand the character of God that it drives our repentance? God's not threatening here, is He? God's not threatening, you repent or I will continue to judge you. God is demonstrating His gracious character as the driving force for their repentance. They know me as a Redeemer. And so they'll come home. Oh sure, there was tough love involved. They kind of had to do like the prodigal. Wake him up. Get him to come to his senses. But once they are enlivened as to their spiritual condition, one thing drives them home. I know that daddy won't reject me. 
That's what brings them home after they have been awakened as to their condition. God says, bring these words with you. Don't you love how explicit and specific God is? God doesn't just say, I'd really like to hear something from you, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. He says, listen, I want you to come home. And when you come home, here is what you are to say. What a God of grace that not only does he give the command, but he provides the substance and the ability as they repent. As they are worshiping God through this repentance. There's one thing that's clear before we move on here. It takes faith. God doesn't redeem on any other basis other than faith. Faith in who He is. Faith in what He has done. That is the object of our faith. And there is no justification. There is no salvation outside of faith in that. I can't wait to get into this next week. Faith in God and in His work is the basis of our faith. Not faith in faith. And he says, here is your repentance. Transacted in faith, knowing who I am. Bring these words. Words play an important part in the revelation of God. God has not spoken by pictures. God spoke by words. Words communicate specifically and powerfully the message at hand. Paul in Romans 10 illustrates Hosea's command in response to the gospel. Not only do you believe in your heart, but you confess with your mouth. Words have always played a crucial part in God's economy. And again, in verse 13 of Romans chapter 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So when Israel goes back to God here at the end of this great time of apostasy, they're to bring words that God gives them. Words that are based in faith, that is based on a heart conviction that God is a God of redemption. I want you to notice in the text this morning some of the things that Israel would have believed about God that we must believe about God in our repentance this morning. Number one, God had the ability to remove sin. Uh, You see, Israel had just gone through generation after generation after generation after generation. Do I need to go on? After generation of gods who were impotent. They had these wooden statues and these stone statues and these golden calves. And they had all of this. And never one time in all of the generations that they worshipped them did those idols do anything for them. They knew what it was like to worship and to pray to an impotent God. But look at their conviction now. They are going to go back to God and they're going to say, take away all our iniquity. They are going to believe that God had the ability to remove sin. They, they didn't have that confidence in their idols. No earthly alliance with the king of Assyria could do that. Only God could do that. But not only did they know he had the ability when they pray like this, they would understand that he had the desire to do this. 
God wants to cleanse them. God wants to receive them. The following confession in verse 3 tells us that, hey, listen, God, we've learned one thing. Assyria cannot save us. They, and not only can they not save us, they won't. They don't have the desire, but you do, God. You do have the desire to redeem in contrast to them. And then notice what they go on to say in their confession. We will not ride on horses. In other words, we're not going to trust and rely on conventional wisdom. That's why God says in several places in the Old Testament that it is not by might. It's not by horses, it's not by the chariots, it's not by the army, but by, by the power of God that His purposes are accomplished. And Israel is confessing to God, we've tried that and it did not work. You alone can save, and you alone desire to save. They go on, and they say, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. These idols are stupid. We, what were we thinking? We made it and then called it God and we won't do that anymore, God. They're very specific in what they are confessing to God and it serves to highlight their belief of the contrast that exists. God can and wants to. These can't and won't. They're confessing this as part of their repentance. So also should their words own their guilt. Um, we've sinned. We have sinned. You know, that's the hardest thing to get human nature to admit. I've sinned. Ah, but you don't understand, man. It, the, the, I was justified in doing that because, you know, I... Fill in the blank. But just to get human nature to say, I am a sinner. We all know that that's the, the battle with the hearts of our children many times is to bring them to that. They've heard Jesus saves. They, they have no reason to doubt that. But save from what? Your sin. Did you do something wrong? Well, no, but, 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 but that person made me do that. No, no, no. Did you do something wrong? And we've all been there, right? Just trying to get them to confess the fact that they sinned, that they violated God's law. God says your word should own your guilt. You should own your sin as your own. You should confess my ability to lift it away. The word literally means he will remove, he will take away all iniquity. That's a bold plea. Now I want you to just think about all that Israel's done in this book. The list of sin is so exhaustive as to really be innumerable. And they come to God with this bold plea and they say, take away all iniquity. They say that because they're convinced that God can. And they make the bold plea because they believe God will. I wonder how many times in our lives do we lack spiritual victory because we lack 
the necessary faith-filled boldness to come before God and say, God, not only do we believe you can, we believe you will, and that you want to remove this besetting sin from my life. I think many times we don't really believe the gospel like we say we do. We come with half-hearted confessions and half-hearted expectations that when we ask God to lift away the iniquity, to lift away the sin from us, we don't really believe it's going to happen. And we begin already in our mind, let's be honest, to make plans for the next time it happens. Is that really believing that God can, has, and will? Or we come to God and we come with uh, confessions that are not completely faith dependent on Him, driven by faith in His character. And and so when we confess our sins, it is in such a way that our repentance hangs on to the guilt because we're not really sure God really actually forgave us. And so we live with, with any manner of insecurity. We live with any manner of fear and guilt plaguing us. No, God says when you come, you come boldly because I can. And I will forgive. Their hope is in His mercy alone. Notice what they say at the end of verse 3. For in you the orphan finds mercy. That's weird to just kind of throw in an orphan. I mean, what an odd... That's random. We're not talking about the orphans or the fatherless or the widows here, as we often do in the Old Testament. Why does the word orphan all of a sudden... One reason... Orphans are completely dependent on another. They have no hope. They cannot provide for themselves. Someone else has to come along and care for them. And Israel is to confess to God, we are like a dependent orphan. We have nowhere else to turn. Only you can care for us. And we know one thing, that your heart is bent towards the fatherless and bent towards those who are likewise dependent on you. And so, God, save us. We are dependent orphans. We have no title to boast of. We have no name to boast of. We have no inheritance to claim. We have nothing to claim but you. So save us. So forgive us. And we're confessing our hope and our belief that your mercy alone will save us. Go back up to verse 2. After a bold plea to take away iniquity and to receive, we find their purpose in doing so, and it is this, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Why why do they want to be forgiven? Why do they want to come back? One reason, to worship God. They don't say, God, get us out of Assyria because it hurts. They're not saying, God, we want to come back to you uh, because we don't really like it in Assyria. And if you'll bring us back to Israel, we'll worship you. No, no, no. They say the sole reason that we want to come back 
the sole reason that we beg for your forgiveness, that we boldly make this request of you, is so that we may present the fruit of our lips, sacrifice. The sacrifice of worship. It's interesting when you begin to translate the Hebrew here, it's, uh, it's quite troubling. If you were to translate it literally and roughly, it would say this, so that we may present the bulls of our lips. What? What is that? You read that and you go, that, that makes no sense. That's Hebrew for you, though. Half the time you're reading it, it's like, why? It's all over the map. So like, what? Bull? He's referring to the worship of God and sacrifice. He's saying, God, redeem us so that we may offer up the sacrifice of praise that is talked about in Hebrews. The praise of our lips. Let let our lips bring forth a, a worshipful experience before you. God, let our lips be that. That's why we make this bold request. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, through Christ, then let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. That give thanks to His name. Oh, so that we may present our lips as those bulls. Those sacrifices that you were pleased with. The hope of the repentant sinner is to join the chorus to God's mercy. And goodness. Let me ask you a question. And you know, I, I think it's a very helpful spiritual exercise to gauge our repentance. I really do. I think that's the only way we really grow is if we, 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 we measure our repentance. And we say, okay, uh, how do I know when I'm deceiving myself? And how do I know when I'm truly repentant? Listen, here's one way you know, I think, a great litmus test for how you know. A person who is truly repentant does so for the hope of joining the chorus to God's goodness and mercy. The person who's sorry that they got caught or who doesn't like the consequences is one who does not think about being free from this sin, having victory over this sin for the purpose of worship. They think about getting out of trouble. But a truly repentant person says, God, we want to be forgiven. We want to be restored for the purpose of worshiping you. Of living for you. God then goes on in verses 4 through 7 and he says, I'm going to give you an unbridled distribution of grace and mercy. The words we bring to God are not only of repentance, but praise for God's extravagant mercy. And he begins to show in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them because I have to. No, I will love them freely. I will love them freely. By the way, the prodigal in Luke 15, his father was under absolutely no obligation whatsoever to ever love that son again. In fact, if he had been a good Jewish father, he would have held a funeral 
for his son at the point that his son left to be completely cut off as a dead man. Do you know that? That's the, that's the, the cultural context around that. Once the son went up to the father and said, give me which you understand that for a son to come to his father and say, I want my inheritance now. In Middle Eastern culture, you only got your inheritance when the dad died. So for him to come to his father and say, I want my inheritance, he literally is telling his father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine. Jewish customs called for the father then to slap that boy to disown that boy, to hold a funeral for that boy, to disown him forever. That father was under no obligation to ever receive his son back. And listen to God's words. I will love them freely. Does God have to? But because he is a God of redemption... And that is the character that he has revealed about himself to be true. He loves them freely. He goes on to say, my anger has turned away from them. They're no longer objects of my wrath. Brothers and sisters, may I say to you this morning, to those of you who are in Christ, God is no longer against you. God is for you. God looks at us, those of us who have repented, from sin and to Christ by faith. God says to those, my anger has turned away. There's nothing better that God could ever say to you. My anger is against you no more. Oh, and not only, by the way... Not It's kind of like Genesis. When you're reading the, 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 the Genesis account and God made the sun and God made the moon and God did all this. Oh, and he made the stars also. Like it's almost an afterthought. We come to this text. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger is turned away from them. Oh yeah, and by the way, I will also be like the dude to Israel. It's not just that he's not angry at us. It's that he bestows unlimited blessings on us. They're like dew, his mercies. He, he meaning Israel, he, he will cause them to blossom like the lily. And he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree. And his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. To those who live in his shadow will again raise grain. And they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Do you hear what God's doing? He's doing exactly what the Father did in Luke 15. Not only are you home, son, here's my robe. Here's the ring of authority for the family. And oh, by the way, go and kill the fatted calf. My son who was lost is now found. And God says, not only am I going to take you back and I'm not going to put you down as a day laborer, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you the choice, son. I'm going to bestow blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace in your life. I'm going to heal you. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. God makes this promise about Israel. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
Ezekiel 36, 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to bring you home. We understand that that is by means of the new covenant that God's going to change their heart, heal their, ultimately heal their apostasy and bring them to Himself through Christ. He says, I'm going to love you freely. Hey, listen, the grace of God is not the idea of men. Men don't want the grace of God. They want their sin. God loves freely because it's in a way that is not conceived by men. It's not even sought by men. Romans 3. There is none who is righteous. There is none who seek after God. No one. Not not even Israel who understands the covenant blessings of God. They didn't even seek God. God sought them. Again and again and again and again. As we've seen in Hosea. God's grace is not accomplished by men. It is all of God's grace to them. God redeems because God chooses to redeem. God is not forced by men to do anything. That's what makes grace, grace. It's not really a gift. If your wife, men, takes you to the store and says to you, this is what I want. This is when it goes on sale. Oh yeah, and by the way, remember all those things I did for you yesterday? Yeah, this would be a really great way to show your love for me. Oh, and by the way, the tax would work out to exactly this amount on this fur coat. And then the husband comes home with the fur coat the next day, after the sale. And he says, here's your fur coat. Is that grace? Is that bestowing it because he thought of the idea? Does it mean as much? No. Does it mean as much? God doesn't do this because we've told him this is how it's going to be. He does it because he says that's how it's going to be. By grace, we're saved. The story of Israel is the same as your story. And it reads like this. You didn't seek God. They didn't seek God. God taught you. When we had nothing to offer but sin, when they had nothing to offer but sin, God offered His righteousness in Christ by His covenant and His faithful promises. When we strayed, God paid the price to bring us home. You remember, let's go back to Hosea and his real life example with his marriage to Gomer. She was his wife by right of covenant. She was his prized possession. And she goes out and sells herself into adultery to other men. She became literally a sensual slave to these perverted men in the cult of Baal. What does Hosea do? We see him in chapter 3. He sticks his hand in his pocket and he takes the silver pieces and he goes and buys out of slavery what was rightly his to begin with. And he brings her home and he loves her. 
He already had her. He had every right to her. And yet he goes after her and after her again and again. Just like God does for us. And he pays the price so that we can return. This grace upon grace. God closes with an admonition. And he says, simply says this, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Um, end of story. <laughs> what else is there to be said? You know how I feel about your sin. Why would you even, in understanding me, why would you think you needed those idols? <laughs> What's the purpose? You know how they crush and how they wound and disappoint. You have me. It is I who answer and look out for you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Psalm 38, 15. I hope in you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Psalm 137, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. Jeremiah 14, 22, Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Therefore we hope in you. For you are the one who has done all these things. Lamentation 3.24 The Lord is my portion. Therefore I hope in Him. Ephesians 1.12 To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. What have I to do with idols, Ephraim? Hope in me. I am the luxuriant Cyprus. I am the source of of your fruit. In a Proverbs-like formula, Hosea closes his sermon. To the one who is wise, listen. To the one who is wise, seek me. The wise are led by God to know Him. The transgressors, unmoved in their sin by the roadmap of God's grace, will continue to stumble in their sin. But to the one who is wise, to the one who God has given this map, open your eyes and return. Your Father waits. God gave His words to Hosea. And His words are perfect. I'm reminded of David in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover... By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. So how do we sum up? Hosea is writing. Sum it up by saying simply this, that the heart of man is exceedingly sinful, but God is exceedingly merciful. Whatever we think about our sin, God is greater. And brothers and sisters, let me just say this, that whatever you think you understand about the grace of God, He is still far greater. I can't see, nor can ear hear, the greatness of God. Whatever we think we've got figured out about God, I guarantee you when we get to glory and we stand in His presence, we'll say we had no idea. God is greater. God's greater than our sin. God's greater than even our ability to conceive how great He really is. The story of Hosea is a story of God's great, redeeming, saving character. You and I would have finished this book after about the first chapter. Done. I'm not putting up with that anymore. I I mean, good grief. I mean, how many times do we have to go through this cycle of Faithfulness, infidelity. I'm done. I'm done. That's what human nature says, but God says, I'm not done. So 14 chapters and untold generations later, I am still what 1 John 4, 8 says. God is love. God is faithful. And when His people repent and return for the purpose of worship, God is pleased to restore and to bestow untold blessing. May we all remember as having been a part of this study that we serve a loving and faithful God who's faithful to His promises. May we never forget that. Father, You're worthy. Father, may we always by your strength, by your grace, by your help, keep our eyes fastened on you. May we never forget what a merciful and loving God you are. May we never forget how faithful you are. May we always remember that no matter how great the sin, you are far greater. Your forgiveness is far sweeter. May we rest and take joy in what we have found to be true about you. May our turning from sin to you on a daily basis as we're faced with a choice to please you or to displease you. May our repentance drive us from sin and to you, a faithful God who is faithful. Father, may our hope May our faith be attached to who you are, to what you have done and nothing else, so that we might truly know you and experience your forgiveness.
Father, thank you for what you are. Thank you for what you've chosen to reveal about yourself to us. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, but you give us the hope of knowing what you're like. So that like the prodigal, when we are awakened by the consequences of sin, we remember your faithfulness, your redemption, your life. Burn this book into our hearts. May we take it with us to the grave, knowing that you're faithful. We pray this in your precious name.